Piccadilly Line, Stena Line, Ley Line, Song Line, Washing Line, Pickup Line, Rock Island Line, The Line of Best Fit, Parallel Line, Horizon Line, A Telegraph Line, A Desire Line, A Fishing Line, A Wrinkle, A Sentence, A Line of Fire, of thought, of communication. The lines we leave behind, the slug trails and furrowed fields, the vapour and fume, the longitudes, latitudes, contours, meridians, are stories of a sort. They tell where we have been and what we desire, intention, distraction, choice. There is a tale in roads taken in yellow woods, pathways, rail tracks, nautical miles, a yarn in every pinstripe, every cable strung between pylons, in the years accumulated on faces. These are the lines that hold us, carriers, darners, that become the warp and the weft of our days. You know what I I started off with? with all this, was slug trails. A slug looks to us a rather ugly, slimy thing. We don't like them very much. But when it's been raining overnight, when the slugs come out, by the morning they've mostly disappeared again. But the slime trails are still there. And when the slime trails are caught in the early morning light, which glances off them from an angle, they shine. So you'll see these beautiful slime trails, and I, I really like those lines. Down the telephone line from Aberdeen, the voice of Tim Ingold, academic and author of A Brief History of Lines, an anthropological study that suggests we are all interwoven and interconnected, drawing upon archaeology, musicology, language, art, psychology, to examine how our understanding and perception of lines has shifted. I started thinking about lines by by distinguishing between two sorts of line. One kind of line is what I call a point-to-point connector, and the other kind of line is the trace of a gesture. So a point-to-point connector goes between one thing and another. It it connects. The trace of a gesture is is the trace left by a movement. So, for example, if you you take a chalk and a blackboard and you just uh, wave your arms or the chalk runs along the blackboard, then you get a line, which is usually a bit wavy, but that line is simply the trace left by a movement that has gone along it. But what is caught in the line is the movement itself. If somebody's argument is kind of looping around, going backwards and forwards and round and round, we tend to say, oh, that's non-linear. I say, well, it's not non-linear, it's perfectly linear, it's just that it's a different kind of line. And so we shouldn't just think that the only kinds of lines there are are things that connect one point to another. There are, there, are all, there are other kinds of lines as well. And a really interesting thing about things like telephone wires or telegraph cables is that they can be both kinds of lines, depending on how you look at it. Calling New York. Calling New York. So at the moment, I am talking to you on a telephone line. There is a connection between us from A to B. But also, my speech 
is carrying on in time and as I'm carrying on you are also listening so there are two paths winding around one another to make the conversation. I'm speaking to you Mr. Leeper from London over the British Post Office telephones. I see Mr. Smith I'm speaking to you located at New York. One wouldn't think that we were 3,000 miles apart would one? No you would not. I'm just going off to tea. Have you had lunch over there yet? And that conversation is also taking place along a line, but we could think of that line then almost like a rope, not so much as a connection from one point to another, but more as different lines twisting around one another. It becomes a place where lives like yours and mine go along together and kind of twist around one another. Thinking about the image and what on a midweek morning, the writer Max Porter and I stroll the pathways of St George's Gardens in Bloomsbury, past the benches and the lime trees, the gravestones and the weeping ash. Porter was a bookseller and editor before he became a writer. His debut, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, and his successor, Lanny, are an intertwining of prose and poetry and illustration physical exploration of the line on the page and a thematic blurring of the animal, the mythic and the human worlds, the past, the present and the imagination. Um, tell us how you got here today, please. I came on the train from Bath, where I now live. And do you see the country in terms of train lines? Do you see it, I know you're a river swimmer, do you swim, see it in terms of rivers? What sort of lines crisscross country, country for you? I think I see this country now in along political lines, unfortunately, tragically, which makes me sad. I guess for a long time, uh, since I've been a parent at least, and since I've been kind of been trying to get my children to see the people they need to see regularly, which is one of the reasons I moved out west, because the M4 was my line. I was endlessly going out west to see my brother who moved to Bristol and my folks who live in Devon and, and so it, I, I felt like I was living on the wrong line uh, and then the more work I've done, research I've done into ley lines, I think that actually there is some truth to the idea that one feels one might be living on the wrong axis or living on the wrong energy line because we were living in South London for about 15 years. All three of my children were born in King's College Hospital in South London and I was very happy there, of course, but I was always feeling that I was having to go around the South Circular on that line to get onto the right line to be near my family, and I felt I could save everyone so much time and money if I just shifted myself west a bit. Also, I read that lovely book about R.S. Thomas called The Man That Went Into the West, about his <laughs> going further and further west, and I thought, oh, if I make the first step... I've kind of convinced my wife that she wants to live in Bristol or Bath, then maybe she'll make the next step with me, then we'll end up in Anglesey, which is where my druidical fantasies peak. My dad was Snowdonian, so I love it up there. Yeah, so maybe I'm maybe my, my lifeline is plotted eventually back out there. That would be nice. Tell us about your investigations into ley lines. Oh, well, just like a lot of people, I... Um, I'm interested in a bit of the mystical 
origins of this country, kind of prehistorical stuff, and moving to the southwest, you're just close to some extraordinary things. And when I was a teenager, I got very into that Alfred Watkins and the old path and all this kind of stuff. And I used, you know, I loved Susan Cooper, The Dark is Rising, and all this sort of sense that there was this very interesting pagan past in this pre-Roman pagan past and I got quite into reading archaeology books and learning a bit more about what they actually might have meant so yeah just just a kind of just a bit of a hobby of mine really it's just like interesting reading. stuff yeah and I do like to think that whilst we're all rational scientific people these days there might be quite a lot to be said for ways of understanding the world outside that uh, and quite increasingly the two traditions are starting to marry up a bit more and kind of the non-human as well thinking about I'm quite an animist these days thinking about uh, things that are alive that aren't necessarily humans. And both your books have these these central figures that are sort of that seem to echo that really. Is that a sort of touchback to those kinds of ideas that there's something deeper running beneath? Well, like they're both kind of mythical forces, the crow and, and dead puppet toothwort. And I think it's partly that I don't want to. I think the kind of superiority of humans in nature, a bit like white supremacy, is is a very toxic framework um, but also it allows you to just have a kind of macro view of human life you you know both the crow who's been a kind of trickster figure in many different cultures for thousands of years and and dead puppet who thought who's the kind of bogeyman or the spirit of nature or the green man he's a template that's existed in storytelling traditions all around the world and so it just allows me to kind of zoom out of the present really and try and tell the truth about sort of strangeness of human consciousness without necessarily relying on contemporary narrative structures or ideas. I know that you felt initially that your novel didn't have a home because it was so unconventional, is that right? Well, oh, the first know, one? Yeah, it doesn't have that, that normal line through it, does it? And, and like a narrative arc, you mean, or, or a plot, or <laughs> doesn't have any of <laughs> these things? Has a plot. I suppose yeah, it, it, yeah. it doubles back on itself, it, it takes little detours, yeah. it doesn't, you ha- it's very, very mischievous yeah it it is involved in play formally it's involved in playing around with these things because i think they're very well established people have been writing novels for a long time now and readers are very accomplished people who imbibe lots of different cultural content so there's no point suggesting that because it's a novel you need to um, adhere to 19th century guidelines about beginning middle and end so i think hybridity and particularly in my work the kind of movement between fragments i've been thinking in terms of line my books would be a wiggly line and probably more like a Mebius strip they would kind of loop back on themselves so I hope that I'm not picking the reader up and delivering them anywhere with any kind of finite conclusions I'm, I'm taking them on a walk with me where the currents I'm unpicking aren't fixed they move and, and I want the reader to do that movement with me in, in the line and across the hole Lines do not have to be linear they do not fly as the crow they might curve and knot and mingle They might defy convention, detour, diverge, unravel. The obvious analogy is in musical counterpoint. When you have a number of melodic lines, maybe in a choir or a string quartet or whatever it is, and those melodic lines are carrying along through time together and continually responding to one another. And the key to harmony in ancient Greek ideas was that it only works through a mixture of tension and resolution. I've been playing the cello ever since just before my 12th birthday. My mother bought me a cello as a boy. I was just nearly 12. 
and I'm now 71. So I've been with this cello for a long time. Uh, so it, it, it becomes a kind of part of who you are um, and it does get under your skin to the extent that it, it affects the way you think. And it always seems to happen that when somebody really gets what I'm trying to get at, it also always turns out that they play the cello as well. So there's something about this instrument that leads people who play it to think, to perceive in a certain kind of way. It's a very gestural instrument. When you play, you really have the sense, and this is, this is part of just because of the way the instrument works. It wouldn't be the same if you played the trumpet or the flute. But when you play the cello, you really have this sense that you're pulling the sound out of the instrument as you draw the bow across the strings. It's, just, it's like you're stretching this thread of sound coming out of the deep resonant chamber. You're pulling it out. I sometimes compared it to, to taking a spoon to some very thick honey and then raising the spoon and you can see this long line of honey stretching from the spoon down into the, the pot. You're pulling the line out of this and it is a line of sound. So to my mind, you can have lines of sound just as you can have those drawn lines on paper. So I'm quite sure that playing the cello affects the way I think. It also affects the way I write. When you're, you're accustomed to dealing with melody and rhythm, you also find that when you're writing, I know that I can only get a sentence right if it sounds right, if I read it out loud. And if it doesn't sound right, if there's something wrong with the melody or the rhythm, I know there's something that needs to be fixed. And that gives writing a kind of, it's not poetry, but it gives writing a kind of poetic quality, which is something I try to achieve in both my writing and in my playing. For many of us, the path we have taken may have been set down early, a route to be followed through schooling and family and vocation. For others, life may have proved more circuitous or meandering, or the line we expected to follow may have veered in a different direction altogether. For Porter, the through line of his life and career has unfolded in a way that seems happily unanticipated. I think it comes from, as a younger person, starting to write and finding that writing and music and painting and drawing were sort of all the same and I wanted to find a form that didn't mean I have to give up on some of the things I have when I draw. I always start with drawing so for me the, the ultimate aim is to try and keep in the prose you know what I started off with in the drawing so the kind of scratchiness of doodling or, or the kind of serpentine fluidity of, of sketching or whatever. How much of your work when you were a bookseller shaped this way of approaching books or oh, maybe a kind of hunger a sort of quite a ravenous book buyer and book reader I, I I liked the sort of wandering around the bookshop late at night and finding things and uh, reading like a magpie in different sections of the bookshop so that maybe a kind of range was implanted so walk us through your walks around the bookshop at night all right yeah where would you go well kids to the kids section a lot of the time and to weird reference books like Brewer's Phrase and Fable I collect books like you know dictionaries of of leaves but yeah so I'd gravitate towards reference atlases books of strange maps the reference section of any bookshop or any bookshelf um 
does suggest a desire to delineate or define the world quite a bit. Yeah, it does. The world has to be organised. It's a human tendency, doesn't it? But if you say that you're going to have quite a disrespectful or adventurous attitude towards it once those, once those fences are put up, you give yourself permission to trespass. And then also to be a bit irreverent towards sources of particularly like powers that seek to categorise the world and you say, well, I'm very grateful to have discovered that information but I'm now going to ignore it or turn it on its head or, you know. Were you always like this, even when you were at school? (laughs) (laughs) I'm picturing you at school, knowing the rules, but... Well, I I wasn't particularly good at school and wasn't particularly happy at school until I met these wonderful teachers at my secondary school. So I think um, gradually, like all of us, I've sort of given myself permission as time's gone on to follow my own interests without feeling I'm doing something wrong. I mean, I enjoy learning now more than I ever have. I'm really keen to learn stuff now, and I'm trying to explain to my kids, I'm sorry that you have to go to school, it's kind of the wrong time. We should all go to school when we're 35, I think. Because I'm loving reading widely and following little currents and, well, following odd little tangled lines from one thing to another and being on my own little sort of private reading map. A bit like Pete and Lanny in, in my second novel... There's no testing or grading. I'm not getting anything wrong. And some of it might be waste products, that's fine. You know, that's part of being alive, isn't it? You imbibe some stuff that's going to come straight out. And also I found that the lines out of the writer's activity, as defined by the market, aren't necessarily the right lines to follow. So this year I've really committed myself to collaborations outside of the immediate world of the novelist. I am doing a, just did a pamphlet with Bonnie Prince Billy which came from a collaboration I've done with Joan Shelley, the Kentucky singer, who's an extraordinary singer. Her voice is... Yeah, which was actually a very beautiful, a bit like the fungal mycelia, whatever it's called, you know, the the wood wide web. She got in touch because she liked my stuff and I got in touch because I like her stuff and she sends me extraordinary Georgian folk songs and I send her back a piece I've read about the inside of tree bark, you know, and on it goes and, and I've got these relationships with countless people now and I feel that each one is a seed planted and if it becomes a plant that sustains me then great and if it doesn't then that's fine because the planting of the seed was the thing you know Um, you know these are the lines I'm following rather than the kind of the line that goes book two to book three I didn't win a prize or I didn't (laughs) I didn't get nominated for that so I better work harder and harder and hope that my third book gets me to that place you know there's enough Ingold's attraction to the subject of lines is a story that also involves mycology. I mean, why have I been writing about lines anyway? I mean, not everybody's writing about lines. Not, not everybody's got so excited about them. And I can think of three reasons. One of them is that I grew up in a scientific household. My father was a mycologist. He was obsessed with fungi. And fungi are very peculiar organisms. And the fungal mycelium is itself like a kind of tangle of lines that are spreading out in all directions. And so maybe that was already one influence. Somehow I was thinking in this kind of fungal way. Then I did fieldwork as an apprentice of anthropologist with Sami people in northern Finland. And for the Sami, life is actually lived along lines. They have their own paths, which they're traveling all the time through the forest and through the tundra. They're tracking animals that are doing the same. And their whole way of thinking is in terms of people and animals moving around, sometimes meeting up and sometimes splitting apart. And so you you kind of unconsciously begin to understand the landscape in that kind of way. 
And the third thing we've already spoken about is the cello. There are two ways in which you could understand the world around you. One was the world as a meshwork. And if you looked at the ground in a forest, you'd say, well, it's full of all these roots of trees and bushes and grasses, and they're all tangled. So one way is to say, okay, the world we inhabit is this it's a vast meshwork in which every, every inhabitant is weaving their particular lines and they all get tangled with one another. But on the other hand, you could say, but wait a moment, when you're out there, where are all the lines? What you've got seems to be an atmosphere, an atmosphere that we breathe. And I figured that actually the world could be both these things, but it, but it alternates between one and the other. Your, your life and career in general has taken sudden detours at times, it seems. You were studying, was it History of Art? Yeah. At the and you were all set to do your PhD. At that point, you must have thought your, your life was fairly set out, and then you go off at, a, at an angle. I don't know, you know, I, I, my, the most important thing in my life is actually my, I'm going to get a bit quite romantic, but is my wife. That was the thing I knew yeah. about, because we fell in love very early and we just feel a kind of very easy fixedness at that. That's a line I'm following all the way to the end, you know. Um, so then my professional life, I was never really very good at worrying about it like other people are, and, and I felt a certain a certain revulsion towards the people that I knew that, started to make enormous sums of money quite quickly doing things that visibly made them unhappy so yeah I, I suppose I've just gone where the where the fates have taken me but I've been very very fortunate because people have been kind to me and also luck I think you know a book like Grief is a Thing with Feathers didn't look on paper like it would find a lot of readers and be turned into a play and have a life and that's just great isn't it one just has to sometimes think that's a nice thing that happened and it gives me a certain type of trust in the readership and faith in myself and that's all good that was a very beautiful thing that you said about your wife. How did two people who meet very young follow their own lines? How do they intertwine? How do they stay on their own path? Well, I think a long-term relationship presents various different challenges. And we both often talk about a thing that was said to us very, very early on by a wise woman who said that you, what you become is the guardians of each other's self-esteem. And very often in our quite long relationship it's occurred to us that we've been neglecting that duty and I, I think particularly I'd say now the ways in which my wife has been kind of eaten alive by me and my children and the fact that I've had this lovely unexpected success and meant I've had to go away traveling a lot and go to nice book festivals around the world is entirely because of my wife's generosity and staying at home looking after our children there's no other there's no other like I could thank Favour or I could thank my agent or I could thank people that go out and buy my book but ultimately I couldn't do any of this if it wasn't for my wife being at home and raising my sons and that's just a phenomenal like my gratitude for that and my indebtedness to her is the biggest thing in my life by a mile and I'm not I'm never going to be a good enough writer to write the love story of me and my wife because it's so deeply entrenched and so fragile to do with her character and her self-esteem and her sense of herself in the world as a girl and then a woman and then me you know it's just it's just the absolute marvelous mysteries of life and the more I learn about the function of the behavior of the natural world it all seems to me is it kind of stuff I'm learning which might one day equip me with the skills to write about how much I love my wife oh, do you know what I mean that's very lovely yeah. oh thanks <laughs> you mentioned before you started recording that, that she has recently started weaving yeah she makes incredible embroideries she made one last year that I love very much. We've got it next to our bed, and it uh, was a kind of homage to Annie Albers. 
so she, we loved Joseph and Annie Albers, and we went on a date night to London a couple of years ago to see the Annie Albers show. My wife was talking about her kind of appreciation of it that, that felt almost bodily, like a kind of deep, deep love of it when she was looking at it. And I was like, God, it's so nice to hear you talking about it like that. Let's, get, let's just bloody do it. Let's get you, let's get you some of this stuff in it. And quite quickly, while we were watching TV at night, she just boshed out this stunning kind of homage to Annie Albers. Now she's got a loom and she's weaving. And I have never seen anything as beautiful as the light coming in our window and my wife sitting at her loom. It is a slow and pain. There's so much to learn about the patience required and the sort of careful thinking and how her brain is just... She's just got the right kind of brain for that kind of thing. So, yeah, the weaving is interesting because I see it from an image point of view very easily and I can liken it to my writing process in some ways because my new book is trying to slightly trying to weave. I've got a kind of what you'd call a... Actually, Tim Ingold's book's really interesting about this, is the, the mark, how, how early writing can be like weaving if you think about the lateral and the vertical axes and stuff. And I'm trying to write... So say, you, say your, your narrative propulsion was your warp and then the behaviour of characters and their linguistic tics and sensibilities and stuff is the weft and the marks, every mark you make is going to be echoed later on or something. Or if you pull at one thing early on in the book, then it's going to have an effect later on. When you weave a textile, you're ending up with a fabric. It's got a surface. The surface often has a pattern. And the weaver has started off with a large quantity of thread. And the really interesting thing about that whole weaving process is that this was the analogy that was drawn on, actually from Roman times. People started to talk about the written document as a text. The analogy for people at those times was immediately obvious because text comes from the Latin textere, which means to weave. So it's, it's as obvious, direct as that. In the days when all writing would have been done on parchment by a scribe, you have first to rule the horizontal lines, which was done with a knife and a ruler. And then you would take your pen and the pen will go up and down and up and down, up and down, oscillating between these horizontal lines to form the letters. So the relationship between the ruled lines and the letter line is exactly the relationship between the warp and the weft in weaving. Thinking about writing in those ways is good for me and healthy because I want to be really intricate about the texture of the book, the surface on the page. And I want to carry on the work I did in Lanny about trying to get the sounds off the page. I don't want anything locked on the page and I can have quite highfalutin ideas about how the text on the page might be like a weaving and stuff but actually I need, to, I need to do things on the page. You can inject into your work with real attention to tone and syntax and inflection a kind of energy that is present in non-printed materials. Yeah. It makes me think of that Hughes, every word is a goblin yeah. idea, I guess. Yeah, exactly. God, that's wonderful, isn't it's it? Cool. And actually thinking about this morning about these ancient scripts that I can't read but I can feel, I can mm-hmm. understand what they were even though I don't read, you know, Mayan texts or, or you know, Bach's cello scores or whatever. Like what one can do purely with, with the gesture. So when Grief was adapted for the stage... Oh, did you see it? Oh, yeah, no, I loved oh, it. Absolutely good. loved it. But the fact that your, your lines, the words were written out on, mm. on the set mm. was quite extraordinary. Mm. 
was that partly your input or was that the stage well, designer? It was a, a great team and we had a really fun time doing it. That was a guy called Will Jupe. What I particularly liked about that is that his particular trauma was related to what he did for a living, which was writing, and, and he was therefore upset. I mean, it was about an obsession with Ted Hughes. If it had been an obsession with Bowie, it would have been different, you know? Like, it, it wouldn't have worked. And if it was, an, it was a crow that was visiting. So I mean, the very fact that the opening moments were that scraping of the language onto the bat, the writing, using something other than a pen, using a part of the body... And, and making a horrifying sound was just like I felt it could have stopped then that was the whole as a, as a translation a really insightful and gentle and generous and thoughtful and as well as, well as open hearted as well as quite witty interpretation or translation of the book the minute they said they were going to do that I was like well it's, you've done it a beautiful beautiful <laughs> thoughtful job yeah I, I liked that a lot uh, I like the idea that the line represents human folly as much as it represents human ingenuity and everything that is beautiful about about leaving a mark is also terribly violent and is a way of damaging what was what was organic and the idea if you look up you zoom out of the world right from right from the fungal lines that connect all living things right up and up and up the idea that on top of that national borders would would seem such clumsy ideas wouldn't they they'd seem such a such um almost such an abuse of the possible delicacy one might have in terms of freedom of movement around the world and following the contours of, of rivers and food sources and etc etc and how humans have at the same time as they've developed you know i love the idea of you know those maps of civilization a bit like dead papa toothwort would sort of be looking and he'd find it just so curious and funny that at the same time as we first work out how to take an image and get it onto a wall using egg tempura paint and certain types of gesso and pigment and that extraordinary moment there so we have like images of man projected onto walls is exactly the same moment we work out a really effective way of chopping off a head or whatever it is you know that the line tells different stories all the time and one of the things we must do as partakers in uh, in the culture ecosystem is to always be open to both meanings to see the line as both threat and opportunity is like gift as well as uh, prison as well but that's why children are such interesting people to hang around with because they see you know where i see a line as a guideline or a set of rules to be disregarded or guarded they they see you know totally different thing an opportunity to vandalize or play so i find going back to the blank page armed with a pen to try and recapture the the, the brain to the hand to the line magic uh, activity uh, the children are there right by my side always with a fresh or disrespectful or sort of anarchic response to what I think I'm doing. Yeah, I haven't made much sense there. No, that's not what I mean. Interpreting a line, whether it marks an ending or a beginning, or is simply a story in mid-telling, is something that Ingold thinks of often. There's also a, a kind of philosophical issue in the sense that thinking about lines is also to think about the world in terms of processes, of becoming rather than being. So we live in a society in which an enormous amount of emphasis is placed on targets, where you have to get from one target to the next target to the next target to the next target. And nobody cares much about what happens in between. And what I would like is for people to actually see value and beauty and humanity in all the things that are going on in between those target points and then if they did pay more attention to all of that they would wouldn't get so obsessed about the targets themselves or so disappointed 
if those targets are not actually ever reached. So I think there is value in thinking about a kind of life in which we are all the time more attentive to the ways we are going, to what is passing us or meeting us on the way. Um, and that's what I, I, I would hope that this kind of perspective would encourage. Do you carry lines with you? Lines of poetry or lines from books? Oh, I or... wanted to show you, actually, when I was reading Tim's beautiful book, what I do in my notebooks. So what I do is, I mean, these are the sort of things I've seen, but then I will start with... Do you know what I mean? I start with a line, then I go back. Can you describe that for us? I mean, there's a good example. That would look like a picture of a jawbone that I read about in a book, and then I've written the word corp, I'm not quite sure why, and then I've come back to this and I've obviously made some notes about atavistic and humanity or something. I'm not quite even sure what that means, but I've gone over and I've copied something out. I think Seamus Heaney wrote that, and then I've drawn a picture of myself rather unhappy in a mirror, and then I've turned it into a comic, so that these things are not separate in my working method. I don't want to have any kind of silos between what is an idea and what is, a, and what is just a sheer response to my lived environment and what is a note to self and what is a plot point from something I'm working on. They must be the same thing. So these books aren't just like important storehouses of ideas for me. They're like actually, these are the living thing and, and if I can try and not kill it by putting it into my work then I know the work will be okay. So if I can keep some of the quickness of music or the sort of immediacy of list making or the sheer boredom of making sandwiches for kids in the books, then I know that they'll be still operating as vehicles of some kind of truth. I find that that as a kind of daily, almost a bit like taking a vitamin pill, as a reminder that if you find the line, you can both take energy from it and, and be critical of the ways in which it's putting energy into the world. Like it, it's a good place to start, which is why, I've, which is why I carry the notebook around with me. Because if in doubt, make a mark, it will take you somewhere. You know, the line is going somewhere. Toast is a British lifestyle and clothing brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. This is a special edition of our regular podcast series. Earlier episodes can be found at Toast Magazine on the Toast website, www.toa.st. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton produced by Jeff Bird and conceived by Emily Mears. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.